everyone, and welcome back to Enjoy the View with Tessa, Ben Hong, Ari Clark, guest panelist Vikas Ashoka, and special guest Babel maintainer Henry Zhu. Last time, we closed our discussion on what work maintainers of open source projects do that are not straight coding. This week, we continue talking with Henry about what do people count as maintenance work versus other tasks that definitely need to get done, but are perhaps less visible to the public eye. Maintainers are so free to do whatever they want. And in the end, the culture, the environment makes you feel like you're not free. But you can choose to stop answering people's tweets or issues or whatever it is. Just say no, right? Stop working on the weekends. Stop working during work, you know. But I think just saying just say no as a tweet or something doesn't show that you empathize and understand the actual feeling that you get doing it. And I think that's the real struggle mm-hmm. of like, how do we help people so that they can do that? And I think that maybe needs some help from the platform too, like GitHub and stuff like that. But it's a yeah. hard problem. I wonder also how much of that is just tied into like beyond people, just coders probably are interested in code, I guess. But mm-hmm. also just like how we value the outputs that people give. Like in your increment piece, you mentioned how you did a lot of work, but you didn't count it as work in the beginning with JSCS, I think, or uh-huh. Babel. I don't remember which one. But now if you look back on it, you probably wouldn't say that just because it wasn't necessarily like PRs. And I thought it was interesting earlier when you were looking back on the work and you were like, yeah, I didn't really do anything. But Seb called me out in a blog post or something. And I was like, well, according to the increment piece, Henry did it a lot. So I wonder if a lot of the struggle is also just because we don't really see the other maintenance aspects as like glorious yep. or something. We don't see certain tasks as maintenance, like even things that we didn't even know were maintenance, right? And I guess somebody had to do it. Answering people's questions is maintenance, you know, like making a video about something is maintenance. You don't even have to be the person writing the code for the project. Like everyone here, you could be a part of the Vue community just by using Vue. And so it's a lot more broad. It doesn't mean you have the same type of ownership over a project. Like if something happens, maybe you don't feel as strong about certain things. But I guess it's like, how do we get people to have a higher sense of ownership so that we can lessen the burden on maintainers? And also maybe the idea of that maintainers should be able to, I use this a lot, but taking a break or resting or just stopping stuff. It is sort of true that if you leave, yeah, it'll kind of be ruined in some sense because no one has the knowledge that you have, even if you're trying really hard. But the world's not crouching down just because you decided to not look at some issues for an hour or a day or a week. Basically, I'm just saying that like you should be able to take a vacation and not feel bad about it. And that's hard to say. Like I'm not really doing that either. So it's like <laughs> <laughs> I guess on that note, Henry, like what I know you also from living in New York City and seeing your own stuff. And so I know for a fact that you do do some things to take care of yourself personally mm-hmm. and to introduce some joy into your life just as a human being. I'm curious, like, how do you do that? What do you do to make sure that you have that joy that you need? That's a good question. <laughs> I feel like I relied a lot on the physical aspects of things. And maybe now is almost, I guess, a good thing in terms of reminding me how much I relied on it and appreciating it more. Of like, you know, people like doing sports or playing music or meeting people. And yeah, you know, like I was writing in that blog post about serendipity. A lot of it in New York has to do with the fact of going outside, you know, not having a car and just meeting people randomly on the street, people you don't know and people you know, 
And that's not really happening now because obviously the quarantine and distancing. But and I was still thinking about how does this work online? Like, what does serendipity look like in an mm-hmm. online setting? And what is that? Even if it's not outside, like, you know, people go to a bar, I guess, to meet people or a park or whatever it is, a church, you know, for different reasons. And you get to meet people. And I think online, you know, supposedly that's like Twitter or something like that, right? But, you know, you want like this open space where some amount of people you can see, right? It's not everyone. And you might make a connection. You make a friend or something like that. I don't know what that looks like now. And I don't know how many people are thinking about that. Yeah, it's interesting because like we try to make up for it with Zoom happy hours. Thank God no one has invited me to one of those in the last month or so. I think people gave up. So I'm curious, when you think of serendipity, what makes a mindset or a physical location or a culture make it something that promotes serendipity? And have you seen any online spaces or do you know of any online spaces that kind of mimic that? Yeah, I don't know. Like when I was thinking about New York, I was thinking about the ethos or culture of New York. Like I don't know how to describe what it's like. For those of us that live there, I think there's some reason why we stay. And I guess even now why we're staying. That's an interesting point too. If now that we can't meet people in person as much, is there still serendipity there? Does the culture of New York still exist? I think you definitely have to be able to feel safe and I guess be willing to be vulnerable. But I guess what I come back to is this idea of putting yourself out there and being okay with what happens. And I think that's really difficult to do, which is why people always go the safe route. So there's an aspect of serendipity that involves risk and involves trust and faith in something that in the future, me putting myself out there is going to lead to something good. And I know that in that sense, it sounds too, like, I guess, optimistic and positive and even maybe a little like new agey or whatever. But if you don't have the opportunity to do that, then I don't see how it's going to happen if you're just going to sit there. So I guess that my opposite would be that you're not actively doing anything. Oh, I think I mentioned this too, of like, it sounds weird to say, but actively seeking serendipity is not like a paradox, right? It's like, Hmm. somehow you're seeking something that is not, I guess, meant to be seeked out. But maybe the way you're doing it is not literally like, oh, I'm trying to do this so that this thing will happen and guaranteed to happen. You're okay with the fact that it might not that makes sense. Yeah. And so Ari, one of the things I've been wondering, like as someone who has had involvement with View Vixens and coming into open source from your background, what are some of your thoughts as far as a lot of things we've been talking about as far as like trying to get involved? Is it intimidating? Love to hear what you think. Mm. Yeah, I've been largely silent because I didn't feel like I belonged in this conversation if I'm being completely honest, which is exactly how I feel about open source in general. I don't feel like I belong. I Mm. don't know how to get in. So yeah, that's my completely candid response. Yeah. I guess it's like on the inside, you have to like remind yourself what it's like if you're not involved in open source, like what it feels like. And I know it's definitely intimidating and I felt that way when I was getting involved too. It's interesting because we try to be really open, right? To help people get involved. But I think maybe that's the problem of like, if you be open in the sense of kind of broadcasting yourself, like the whole one-to-many, like if I say, hey, anyone can reach out to me or something, or you say like your DMs are open, stuff like that, that only invites a certain kind of person, right? And so that's Mm -hmm. where I feel like being more intentional of specifically reaching out to people or getting involved in certain communities is probably better. And there are formal versions of this, like Google, Summer of Code, that we've done like that and Rails Girls, Summer of Code, stuff like that. But yeah, maybe we need more of that. 
instead of this blanket like, hey, anyone can get involved. And I also think that certain subsets of the community have been traditionally unwelcome, whether explicit or implicit. And women in general, I think, have been a huge part of that. We look at communities like Linux and Linus Torvalds and the sort of reputation around a lot of open source communities. I mean, obviously not nearly as much in various JavaScript communities. I like to think we're a little bit better than that. <laughs> but yeah, it makes it difficult to even want to cross that barrier. So I think you're absolutely right about outreach and communities. But the thought of being vulnerable enough to even like submit yeah, a PR nah. is just terrifying. <laughs> even though I understand maybe it shouldn't be, but it just feels very vulnerable. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's like, if I'm saying all this stuff about how it sucks, it's like, that's not very encouraging to people. (laughs) So that's why I have the conflict where it's like, I want people to get involved. And there are definitely a lot of awesome things about it. And I think maybe some of us have experienced that. But again, I don't want to paint a rosy picture because when they do get involved, they're like, wait, this is not what I expected. And this sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Like last year I tried to do, was it last year? I don't remember. I finished, but I never signed up to get the t-shirt or whatever. I tried to do Hacktoberfest for the first and only time. And so that was like my first time opening PRs on like random open source projects. And I updated the docs, which is traditionally not like a very glamorous thing to do, I guess. And then they closed it and they said it didn't count because I was obviously just trying to spam to get my Hacktoberfest points, even though I already had my five PRs. What? Wow. Yeah, that didn't feel very good. Whoever the open source maintainer was, I don't remember the project. But yeah, Ari, I feel like to Ari's point, a lot of my preferences and like the tools I've ended up using or my focus on Vue even has been shaped primarily by my experiences with the in-person communities around Mm. the technologies and like how much I was able to feel a part or impact those communities and be heard. That is very important. Hmm. Yeah. On that note, I'm curious, this is like for Ari, I guess for everyone in the group, what is the relationship between these in-person communities, like the meetups? and like open source culture, because, you know, Ari, especially you and Tessa, I think, do a lot of organizing of meetups. Whereas, Ben, I don't know if you do that as well, actually, uh, not called out anyone in particular, but totally like, fun. whereas Henry and I attend a lot. And so I'm curious what that relationship feels like on both ends. Mm. Tessa, do you want to answer that first? Yeah, there's no more in-person meetups. So the end. <laughs> well, okay. I think it's a lot of similar struggles to what Henry said. Like you feel a lot of pressure to do right by the community, but also you don't know what's right. And also, you know, you're doing it on your own time. There's no money or glory in it. Actually, it's very similar. I went to like this Google event like a couple years ago where they invited a bunch of meetup organizers and they were like, what's the hard thing about starting meetups? And it was pretty much exactly what Henry said, where it's like, somebody finds you and they see that you have the passion or the drive to do the things just for the reason that nobody else is doing them and you feel like it's important to get them done and then they hook into you and they're like, do the things and then suddenly you're trapped there. So it's like that. I actually love to hear, Ari, from your perspective of like the Vue Vixen workshops and those things. Granted, I know those things aren't being run right now, but your experience and seeing that sort of interaction and bringing people into a community. That was huge for me, honestly. Vue Vixens is the reason I'm on this podcast. They're the reason that I even started to feel a part of the community at all. And that was very much because it was a very welcoming environment, very non-judgmental. And also they provided sort of the introductions into the greater community for me. So yeah, I would say that being very intentional about reaching out can make all the difference in terms of making someone 
welcome in any part of a community, especially if you have a gateway to the larger community. Also, I have never wanted to learn React, for example, because of the culture I see on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I think that how you draw people into your community makes a huge difference in the level of engagement and willingness to put effort in outside of surface effort. Yeah, and butterfly effect to add on to Ari's story. A couple of years ago when I was giving a full conference talk at ViewConf, I met Ari at one of the events the night before and she was so excited (laughs) to see my talk and I was so intimidated because Ari clearly knew so much more about the topic than I did. (laughs) But it made me feel so great that somebody was excited for specifically my talk and my talk topic. So that individual connection, it really makes a difference. Mm. And the funny part about later in that story, as I told Tessa, she would probably never see me again because I'm terrible at being friends with people. (laughs) And I never never did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, Henry, if people want to connect with you, where can they find you on the internet? Actually, I don't even know. They don't need to follow me, but you can, (laughs) you can listen to the podcast. How about that? Hopeinsource.com. Yeah. Great. We'll put that in the show notes. And with that, it's time for us to move on to this week's picks. Ben, would you like to go first? All right. As far as my picks for this week, the first of which, being a lot of us are in quarantine, I think picking up an instrument is a fun way to disconnect from technology. And so I grabbed my ukulele from my parents' house recently and trying for the third time. I failed three times now. Maybe the third time it will actually stick. So picking that up. As far as board games go, if you haven't tried out Azul, A-Z-U-L, that is a great one. It has a lot of replayability and just highly, highly recommend it. And of course, earlier we talked a bit about Nadia's book, Working in Public. Would highly recommend it. I've only read, like I think, the first chapter and already it just changed the way I've seen thought about open source because it's one thing to be involved on the view core team and like a specific scope but nadia brings in data and like has a breadth of case studies that really just give you an insight into different things that people have tried and really has opened my mind up so highly highly recommend it if you haven't checked it out yet yeah ukulele has been one of my like i'll learn it someday goals as well that just never happened Ari, how about you? Do you have any picks for us this week? No, because I just watch Grey's Anatomy for my the entirety of my spare time. So I guess <laughs> I could pick that. <laughs> there we go. Just a constant <laughs> gut punch. <laughs> oh, yikes. Yeah, I mean, if we were to talk about the things we actually do all the time, I would probably have some different picks than the one I'm going to say. Yeah. We got to do everything um, in public, right, Vikas? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. I'll tell on myself. Yeah. What I, are your picks? I get to my, my, my partner and I, we, at the end of the day, with all that's going on, we have gotten really into just wholesome TV shows, just stuff that feels nice. And so most recently, we have been watching Kim's Convenience on Netflix. All the characters have their problems, but they're just like a great family. They take care of each other and they just live like good people. It's a Canadian TV show. Some of the cultural things are actually pretty interesting to me like specifically as Canadians, but also as Koreans living in North America. My other pick though, which is what I do for a few months, I like couldn't read a book to save my life. But recently I've been able to like read again and have my mind focus on it. The book I picked up, which I've been really loving is called Race After Technology. It's by a professor of African-American studies actually at Princeton, but she talks a lot about middle of the Venn diagram between like science and tech and race and society. And so her book, you know, she plays with 
the term The New Jim Crow, which, you know, is a Michelle Alexander book that's, I think, 10 or 20 years old. She plays with that and calls a new phenomenon The New Jim Code. And it's kind of how technology is both reflecting, but also like solidifying and reproducing existing inequities and existing biases that are in the wider society. And so it's really, really fascinating to read as someone in tech, you know, as an engineer, but, you know, also as a person of color. Her first chapter, she talks about names and, you know, my name has meant a lot to me. It's been a very strong anchor in my life, but also something that has caused a lot of angst and conflict as well. So that book is really incredible. Race after technology. Yeah, that sounds really great, especially because I feel like with those kinds of issues as well, that's another area where we hear a lot of just stick to the code or the algorithm itself isn't inherently biased. And it's like, how do we deal with those issues and understand that code doesn't just come out of nowhere? Henry, would you like to share your picks for us this week? Yeah, I have one, but actually based on <laughs> Vikas's book, a book I read a while back is called Tools for Conviviality. That's also a book about technology by Illich. Sort of the same thinking, and this is a while back, but it talks about how there's a difference between industrialized tools versus even this distinction between apps and tools. So we'd say like, oh, you know how like everyone's always in Silicon Valley, we're like, oh, we'll have an app for that to fix all of our problems, you know, versus a tool that people can learn how to use on their own versus something that's designed where you have to like kind of do it within the boxes of what the designer picked. And that's normally a good thing. But for a tool, we want self-expression from the people that use it. And I think coding is, or anything, he mentions like education and school and medicine and coding could be another thing where it's like, increasingly, it's harder to learn how to code, even though now we have like boot camps and stuff. The tool I work on doesn't help with that, I guess. <laughs> so I understand that like, yeah, we're making it harder for people to understand because technology is being used even more and more than, yeah, like what you said, there's this inequality there of like understanding and stuff like that. And then my other pick, which I guess is interesting because it's called The Mind. It's a board game. I played it at a few conferences with some people, but yep. I guess you can't really play it now because um <laughs> not in person. And I don't know, even if there was a digital version, if it would make sense. We talked about this idea of like body language before, but the whole point of the game is it's mm. fun because in short, you're supposed to play the cards like one through a hundred in order. Uh, you deal them out, not all of them at once, but like one at a time. And you have to play them like ascending order. But the catch is that you can't talk to each other. You can't say like, <laughs> I have a three. You just have to know when to play the cards. So the point of the game is basically who goes next but you have to know when you're supposed to play. So you have to kind of essentially look at everyone. What's their body language? Are they kind of leaning in front? They're probably going to go next. If they're kind of leaning back, they're probably not going. Are they touching their card? They're probably about to play. So it's kind of fun. It sounds really dumb in a way because you're like, wait, it's just like sorting some cards. <laughs> I don't know. It's just funny things come out. And sometimes if you allow people to talk, not like I have this card, but just like saying things, it's kind of cool where <laughs> you know people are like, hey, I think I'm going to go next. You're like, no, I'm going to go next. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely speak to when we played at ViewConf. Actually playing with strangers is great because you just learn about mm -hmm. people's random ticks and you're like, are you sure? Like, I'm really sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, just funny serendipitous things happen. Definitely yeah. can second that pick. Yeah, Henry has told me about this game so many times and I still never have gotten to play it. So if <laughs> any of our listeners also feel like they're missing out and you also run a podcast, 
I just played a card. So you try to guess what it is and play the next card in the next episode of your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. This game is so popular because the big O on that, it really seems like a really unperformant way to sort. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> nice. Right. Bringing it back to the Thank code. You. Bringing it back to the code. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And finally, it's time for my pick. So I also have a game pick that was inspired by some of the discussion today. It's a relatively old game now called Journey. I feel a bit ambivalent about recommending it because I have this thing about sand and any media that contains sand, and there's vast amounts of, of sand in this game. But you can replace it with any other game with limited (laughs) communication tools like Resident Evil 5 or 6 or something. It's funny because you can encounter other players online in the game, but they only have three or four different sounds that they can make or gestures they can make to communicate with you. So you would Mm. think that that would mean that the things that you can say and the kinship you feel with other players who all look exactly like you and you don't know their names or anything would feel very limited. And so it's surprisingly weird to me almost how much more connected I feel with random person who I have no way of re-identifying versus like random commenter on GitHub. So if you haven't tried that, check it out. It also happens to have won a ton of awards. So there's that. My next pick came through Ben or through Ben through a friend of Ben's or something. It's, I believe, the latest in the Ungdapara series, or in English, we call it the Reply series. So right now I'm watching Reply 1988. It's a story about a community like in a small neighborhood in Seoul and how they just live through their trials and tribulations together and they work together as a community and they have their own issues going on as well. And there's also a lot of great old-fashioned Korean music in there, which I've always been a fan of. And so watching the show with these vintage high school uniforms and old music reminds me of when I was in high school, I had to learn this song called Tsubasa o Kudasai, which means please give me wings. It's, it's a folk song and it's kind of like cheesy and it's all in. And I remember at the time, all my classmates were like, yeah, this is really cheesy. And I was internally really into it, but I couldn't really appreciate it because I felt all this external pressure. And so I wish I could go back and just be like, I know it's cheesy, but like I'm going to completely lean into learning that song. And that brings me to my final mm-hmm. pick, which is this book called Conquer Your Critical Inner Voice. Incidentally, it was it was recommended in another book that I was reading. So that's how I found that. And it's like a series of chapters. I've only read the first one, but it's a series of chapters that explain how we internalize external voices and judgments and ideas of what we should do and what we shouldn't do and why we're such failures as human beings, whether that's from like guardians in childhood or even, you know, as we continue to grow and develop as people. And then there's a series of exercises that you can do to learn to separate those thoughts from your own thoughts and try to identify how you truly view yourself in a fair and compassionate way. And with that, that's all for this week's episode. Don't forget to check out Henry's new merch. Thanks for listening, everyone. And until (laughs) next time, enjoy the view. (laughs) 